I can read your mind. You're thinking, follow that. <laughs> Not only do I have to follow that, but I have to follow Pastor Dennis's sermon from last Sunday on election. And I got more comments this week about how wonderful that sermon was. One of the best, if not the best, on the subject of elections. So this is uh, my lot. Uh, I pray that the same enthusiasm you put into singing is put into hearing the Word of God and, uh, and uh, appropriating its wonderful truth. But I'm not Dennis, and I'm not Scott. Or... The rest of this congregation, I think we need to do a YouTube video of that and put it up against uh, Wendell's own YouTube video. By the way, if you haven't studied Psalm 107, that's what I feel like doing right now is uh, preaching through Psalm 107. What a wonderful psalm. And uh, one of the verses of the psalm is actually not in this version of the hymn. So I send you home to uh, look at that. It's based upon parallelism, but it's a tremendous truth that is presented there in that psalm. I want to introduce our text this morning by turning to a different text. Uh, And I I don't expect you to turn there with me. You can simply listen. This is from 2 Corinthians. The author is the Apostle Paul. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he writes, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. With that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I do want to read the chapter in its entirety this morning so that you have the larger context from last week and this week as uh, if you were enabled to be a part of that worshiping congregation last week. So, here then the word of God from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And our text begins in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. A precious is the word of God. As we think of the inexpressible things that the Apostle Paul heard when he, I think in self-testimony, speaks of his being taken up into heaven, perhaps a near-death experience in which he ascended into the very uh, presence of the Almighty God and of the risen and resurrected and enthroned uh, glorious Son of God. Perhaps there as our imagination uh, begins to uh, flirt with what it is that we have yet to hear, what it is that we have yet to uh, listen to the utterance of. And then we turn to a passage like Ephesians chapter 1 and we ask, is there anything greater than this? Is there anything more majestic, more wonderful that we have not even read this morning? in this text, which we are permitted to hear, which we are permitted to ponder. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for that which has been revealed, that we might know you in your eternal purposes and in your infinite love. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we as a congregation, both here in the sanctuary and in the overflow, might offer up in concert our praise, our adoration, our, the eyes of our hearts, that we might be transformed by truth, that we might indeed fall in love with our Savior all over again this morning in a very special and wonderful way. So we entreat you by the Holy Spirit's work. So work within each one of us today as we come in Jesus' name. Amen.
I had the wonderful first two days of the week in Chicago with uh, my fellow board members for Christian Witness to Israel. Stephen Atkinson sends his greetings to you all and gives thanks to God for you and your participation in the work of mission to the Jewish people. And uh, just ask if you would continue to pray that God would indeed not only use CWI, not only use uh, Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, but that he would raise up missionaries. And if you have an interest in Jewish mission, let me encourage you to ask me about it because we are going to uh, be giving scholarships and so forth in order to promote Jewish mission around the world. And we'd like to see uh, more and more people embrace what uh, Romans sets forth as the uh, final manifestation of the great glory of God in redemption when he draws his, the Jewish people to saving faith. But all uh, we had this conversation about the Queen while I was there. Two of the members of our board are Scott, Scotsman, and uh, they were having a good time uh, talking about the Queen. And one of the stories at the expense of the Americans was that there were some American tourists that were traveling in the highlands near uh, the now deceased Queen's uh, northern estates. And as they were walking about the lands, they happened upon this uh, man, a soldier, official-looking like person, and uh, with a woman at his side. And they immediately pressed upon him, have you ever met the queen? And the uh, queen looked at him, and he looked at her, and they decided to just play this out and see where it goes. And so he said, well, yes, I have met the queen, and uh, she's a remarkable woman, and so forth, going on and on. And uh, finally, the American said, well, we'd like to shake your hand and get a picture with you. And they asked the woman there to uh, take the picture. <laughs> and uh, knowing that eventually they'd learned that they had actually met the queen, she suggested to them that, hey, maybe they ought to all, uh, or the, her guard ought to take a picture of them with her as well. And they said, okay, you know, that's fine. But uh, it was kind of a curious uh, mistake that the American tourists uh, made. They didn't realize what was right before their eyes, who was right before their eyes, and they just became enamored with somebody. I learned had actually shook hands uh, with the queen himself, and I immediately wanted to shake his hand and get a picture with him, <laughs> because uh, that's pretty uh, significant. Now, in regard to uh, our text, and that has some application I'll, I'll draw out in a minute. Uh, Ian Hamilton, in his commentary on Ephesians, actually uses a similar story talking about how he and his wife were on vacation in London, and while they were there, they visited the Tower of London and had an opportunity to see the crown jewels. But they were in a, a highly secure glass case, out of reach, locked away in a bulletproof cage. Not out of sight, but out of reach. And he rightly uh, points to the fact that a text like the one that we are dealing with in Ephesians chapter 1, and this portion of it in particular, uh, is like the crown jewels of Scripture. It is Christology. 
that is uh, set before our eyes concerning the glory of the person of Christ. And sometimes we're like the American tourist. We, we don't see what is right before our eyes. We are enamored perhaps with Ephesians chapter 2 and the doctrines of grace as they're set forth there. Perhaps other portions of scripture grab our eye. But here, as we look at this text, what we ought to recognize is that the Apostle Paul, with all of the eloquence, even though very succinctly and articulately, sets before the Ephesian believers this uh, majestic peering into the wonder and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all, what I want you to see this morning, and Lord willing, uh, will hit my mark. This is the ultimate joy and gift to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul sets forth here, not just in terms of words and revelation, but in terms of reality. This is a gift that is given specifically to the church. Notice in verse 22 where it says that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the first thing that we want to see as we look at this text is that Paul sets forth in the 15th verse his prayers for the Ephesians. And as he does so, he conceives of them as a church, as a whole body. Now, we would be inclined to identify ourselves most likely as uh, part of CVPC. Maybe some of our students have other churches that they're a part of. Maybe you're a visitor today and not yet a part of CVPC. We invite you to come and be a part, not just today, but again and again. This is a wonderful identity here because of a very special congregation. But our larger identity is to be a part of the body of Christ whose boundaries the Lord himself knows and whose scope is as extent as the power and purposes of Christ in his electing love. And Paul's writing to the Ephesians with that kind of perspective. He's writing to a congregation to a community, to a, a people. And one of the first things that we need to recognize that is all the reality as Dennis laid it forth in the opening verses in terms of the verbs of the early verses of the chapter that we are chosen before the foundation of the world find their ultimate significance not in our individual election but rather in our inclusion through that election into the larger purposes of our sovereign God. So that while we begin, each one of us, with that question of faith, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? In him have you found your hope? Is he the basis for the victory over sin in your life, as you embrace the way of holiness, the way of righteousness, trusting alone in his forgiveness, his redemptive work. That's how it begins. It's a rather individual journey, to be sure. 
But as it proceeds, as the purposes of God are met in your life, you become woven into the fabric of God's people, into the tapestry of diversity and wonder that make up all those who have been called from all the nations of the world into the body of Christ. And God's ultimate purpose is indeed to have a people, a bride, specifically created for his son. And so unto that end, notice then how the Apostle Paul uh, delves into this uh, majestic vision. He does begin, for this reason, because of the things that I have already written and that we've read this morning and that Dennis has preached on, uh, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I want to stop right there. You know that Paul uses long sentences, and we're going to have to break them up in order to wrap our head around those sentences. But notice, when you peer into a man's prayer life, you peer into a person as he is. When he's alone in his closet or alone in his thoughts, when he is before the throne of God and he speaks to his heavenly Father, such is the person as the Father knows him and as he is in his essence and reality. It's not the outward works. It's the reality of a spiritual life on fire and in relationship to our heavenly Father, our triune God. And so the Apostle Paul, in describing his relationship to the Ephesians, conveys that he is full of thankfulness. And why is he full of thankfulness? Because the miracle of faith, the miracle of regeneration, has wrapped itself around this people in Ephesus, this congregation. And the manifestation of that faith is seen in their love. Love for one another. Love for the body of Christ. In other words, for the saints, all the saints. And you, you do well to go back to if the book of Acts 19 and 20, for example, also the letter to uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy, where Timothy was a minister there among the Ephesians. You might also take into account in Revelations chapter 2 the, the Lord Jesus' words to the Ephesian church. But what we get a picture of, just to coalesce that all together, is that here the Apostle Paul went to plant a church and he began in the synagogue. And after three months, they, driven from the synagogue, he found, founded a church based upon God-fearers, Jews, and Gentiles who made up that initial congregation in Ephesus. And they faced the opposition of both Jew and Gentile in that city. The Jews, because of the message of the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the Gentiles, not because of its foolishness, but because of the economic threat that they pose to the temple worship there in Ephesus, the selling of the trinkets and the idols. And here the gospel message was transforming the community so that the sales dropped. That's what 
the influence of the gospel does. And it happened in Ephesus. And the church was under persecution. It was from without, but there was also, as we see from 1 Timothy, the challenge of false teachers within. And Timothy was told to stay in Ephesus and to correct and to teach and to stop the false teaching that was within that congregation. But in the midst of it all, by the miracle of grace and the wonder of saving faith, there was a community that loved one another. And we know that not only from this epistle, but also from Jesus' own words to the church in Ephesus. What did he say there to the church in Ephesus? You've lost your first love. You were known for your love. And now you've lost it. And Jesus warns them. Beloved, as we think about the wonder of the gospel, the reality of the community of which we are part, and the expression of love one to another is that basic line that manifests the reality of the gospel in our lives. When love and is missing and discord rises, we know a church is in trouble. This morning in Sunday school, Lois said that CVPC is a loving congregation. We need to see that as a baseline. We need to recognize that's not what we aspire to. That's what the gospel does. It transforms self-seeking, individualistic believers into a community that loves one another. How I've heard over the years many times that the love of believers is much thicker than blood. Relatives, though they're always a part of our story, the love between believers and for believers is one of the strongest bonds. And you know it. You can be in a distant community. You don't necessarily care what denomination a person is but you hear them express that their only hope and the love of their life rests in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know there is a bond there without any intimate knowledge, just that simple truth. And Paul encourages the Ephesians on that basis. But notice then, secondly, that... Uh, the Apostle Paul goes on to describe his prayers. And here I think we might learn how to pray for one another. How to pray for one another. He says, remembering you in my prayers, the end of verse 16, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Well, is that how you pray for one another? Husbands, maybe you need to pray for your wife in this way. That the truth of the gospel would captivate and govern their thoughts. Wives, maybe you need to pray for your husband in this way. That the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing would be the driving thought and the love of your husband's life. Parents, how do you pray for your children? May they be saved, we may pray. Perhaps we need to raise the bar. Say, no, may they be captivated by the reality of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Animated by the very power of what is set forth here. And so, in speaking of how he prays for the Ephesians, he prays uh, to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now that phrase needs to be unpacked, and I don't have time. Dennis has a greater discipline. He focused on only one verb in the preceding. I'm not doing that, but I'm not going to be able to do all of the text either. But here, clearly, the Apostle Paul seeks to set before you that this is not God in the sense of the pagan idols of this world. This is not a tottering little uh, image set up on the shelf, plated with gold. This is the God of glory. And you need to allow your thoughts to rise heavenward and to think of all that you know from the scriptures and all that you have learned whether in Sunday school or Bible reading or from those counselors in your life, you need to let those thoughts rise as high as they possibly can because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing with that phrase, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Father of glory. And to what end then does the Apostle pray? That you might have, that he might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, having the eyes of your heart open. Again, I think what Paul is doing here is seeking the fewest words to give expression to the grandest of thoughts. And I marvel at that. And no, I'm not personally compelled to follow his example. Because as a pastor and as a preacher, we unpack these things. And you need to unpack them as well. It's not enough simply to acquaint yourself with those words. But notice the emphasis of that particular verse. That you would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I touched on this back when I preached from Hebrews chapter 1. When we speak about revelation, everybody wants to have a secret word from God. Everybody wants to have that very appropriate truth applied to their particular wound and their particular need. And we all crave that in our life. Lord, tell me what to do next, we say. Tell me how to handle this problem concretely so there's no question about what your will is. And this is the kind of thinking that runs through our mind. But Paul says to this little congregation in Ephesus, my prayer is that you will have wisdom together with revelation. And I would think that you might readily see that we have in the word of God 
revelation. We have in the person of Christ the final word, as it were, of the revelation of God. But in saying that, we do not dismiss the role of the Holy Spirit, nor of the importance of wisdom. You are not dismissed from class. There are lessons to be learned. And there are godly men and women who are able, because of the presence of the Spirit of their life, to speak those words to you in truth and to guide and instruct you. And for you to be humble enough to say, Speak, Lord, your servant listens. Even through the mouth of my servants, the prophets, one of the Puritan writers pointed out that this is the very thing that the Jews were condemned for. They would not take to heart the words that God spoke to them through the prophets and through uh, the servants of God. And one of the things that I think you need to recognize is that when Dennis is preaching to you, he is shepherding your soul from the word of God. When a pastor preaches the word of God, you ought to look to the Holy Spirit that the revelation set forth in the scriptures might be applied according to your need and that it might penetrate all the barriers that we come pre-erected, pre-in-place, that it might draw our attention to the holy will of God. May the Lord give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Very, very important. Very important to the understanding of what he's about to speak. If you don't prize the revelation of God, if you don't look to it with wisdom to understand it, to breathe it in, to take it to heart, all is for naught. No, may God give to each one of us that spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of your heart are enlightened. Don't you love that phrase? The eyes of your heart. Some of you have great intellects and are quite capable of uh, deep controversial or specific type of thought. I have no doubt about that. Uh, Paul's not talking about feeding that appetite for insatiable knowledge. As you know, I have children in this congregation, and I trust they won't call me a liar. But one of the things that I would tell my children is uh, the Lord gave me opportunity. And I didn't have to tell them a lot, so they probably forgot. But, uh, and, and that is this. I want you to grow up to uh, know the Word of God and to love the Lord. But what I want above all else is that the Lord would captivate your heart so that your knowledge of him would lead to a passion not only to raise up your children to love the Lord, but to pray for and raise up children who care about their children and their children and their children for generations to come. It is here that we see what Paul is really saying. This needs to affect us where we feel emotionally, where we are in our very being. It's not Encyclopedia Britannica to go to on the shelf, 
This is knowledge that ought to transform your passions, your zeal. And so he uh, elaborates. What is it that he would have you to know? What is the hope to which he has called you? That is in verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Those three things. Time will not permit, I'm afraid, to get into them too deeply except to say hope is an incredibly important part of our faith. If you're at a good place and all is well, something you're missing, right? There is that sense in which we look for another country. We look for a greater reality than our present experience affords us. I think that Dennis would unpack that better than I am. I know that many of you have hurts and experience hardship. Just processing the hurts of your life on a day-by-day basis can be an extremely painful reality. We live in the context of need. And the gospel is our hope. And that hope is found in what God has in store for those whom he has called. He has great... Great things indeed for you and I. What, how does Paul describe them? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance, which he has for each and every one of us? But not just each and every one of us, but also for his church. Heaven is spoken of as the great wedding feast of the Lamb. There is something to anticipate where relationships are made new and whole where sinlessness captivates our discourse one with another. Joy is spoken and felt in the context of community. And the Apostle Paul uh, has that sense. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power to bring to pass those glorious riches of our inheritance to which he has called you. Beloved, you can dwell here uh, extensively by searching the scriptures and seeing how the Apostle Paul elaborates on this in other passages very, very briefly. From uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But hear this. But as it is written, you know what's coming, don't you? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person 
which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Let's look lastly at the very last part, 22 and following. And, and I do this because I think that uh, this is something that is transformative for all of us. We are going through a wonderful time of blessing. Dennis is leading the staff and the elders and praying for a revival. Here we're seeing our pews filled here and in the overflow. Uh, what a wonderful thing to witness what God is doing among us. We believe it is a matter of the Spirit's work. And yet, as we pray for revival and as we seek God's favor upon uh, each and every one of you individually, we also seek for God's favor upon this congregation that we might be cognizant of God's purposes. And here, I think the way that Paul frames this for us before he enters into the doctrines of grace, as it were, he speaks of Christ. And the mighty power that is at work in the body of Christ is the same power which not only raised Christ from the dead, verse 20, and it also seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Meaning what? That he is the victor over death. You who have visited the funeral home, you that have looked at the dead body of a loved one lying in state, know how helpless it is. A young child, perhaps. Oh, I love this word. Oh, how you would like to vivify that body. To bring it to life. But there is nothing you can do. You are absolutely helpless. And yet the power in Christ vivified his body so that he broke through death and the bonds of death. Incredible, life-giving power in the person of Christ. That's the power that's at work in you, in your salvation, in your redemption, and will ultimately vivify your body, which belongs to Christ, and bring you at last into his presence, body and soul. How wonderful the hope that we have is that God is doing this work. He has demonstrated his power and that work will come to fruition. But notice now how the Apostle Paul draws this all together, that he exalted him to the right hand in the heavenly places. Think of uh, Ephesians 12, or excuse me, Hebrews 12, where uh, the writer there says, we've not gone to Mount Zion, but we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to that sacred assembly of thousands upon thousands of angels in holy worship and the souls of righteous men made perfect that, that surround the throne of God. Think of that. The power at work in Christ exalted him and exalted him above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. In other words, 
raise your mind as high as you can raise it in terms of honor, in terms of power. And you probably have not begun to plumb the true definition of the honor and power of the one who gave himself for you. We, there is a point in which all of our hard work reaches a ceiling and we recognize it. And we cry out to God, help me to grasp the significance and the reality of who Jesus is and how he reigns and what he does. And strikingly, the beauty of his crown. Crown of thorns, not of jewels, but of thorns as the ascended and holy Lord and God. And then just tying this lastly together. Why all this? Why all this? Why are we caught up in this drama? Why have we been brought into this narrative, this story? Why is your story inextricably tied to this story? Why is it? You cannot run from it. You cannot evade it. You are tied to it. As every human being is. It is because in the Father's purposes in your election, in the Father's purposes in your redemption, in the Father's purposes in revelation is to give this glorious one to you as the church. We usually think in terms of Ephesians 5 and the giving of the bride to Christ, that God is redeeming a people for himself to give his bride to his son. And he is. But notice how Paul, in the same epistle, speaks of the fact that the Father has deigned to give his Son to the bride. Isn't there a wonderful sense of the beauty of purpose of marriage as it's reflected that one is equally a gift to the other as the other is to the one? You may think you're the gift that God gave to your wife or vice versa. Maybe you are. Oh, you are. There, God's gift to you as well. And here we see in the story of our Lord ascended on high in glory, God intends to give him to us as a church, as a gift. That shouldn't surprise you. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to his church. Our Heavenly Father is in the business of being a gift giver. But here's the point of Ephesians chapter 1. All of God's sovereign purposes in election, all of his eternal purposes in his son, Paul draws together to this conclusion that they are a gift to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you're mighty special people. And that's not my saying so. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
You have no idea how special you are to your heavenly Father. You say, I know that the Lord gave his blood for the salvation of my soul. No, the Father has given his Son in everything that it means to be a son. In everything that it means to be the second person of the Trinity. In everything that it means to be endowed with all honor and glory. He has given him to you as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my heart throbs with joy when I hear Dennis stand and say, I love the church because Christ loves the church. And I think the call of this text is to call each and every one of us to say, hey, I need to forgive the person who offended me by not speaking to me or said something they shouldn't have said. I need to express love and kindness to them because you know what? We are co-heirs of the greatest person and the most wondrous gift that we could ever possibly share together. To know, to be loved by, and to love. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, how wonderful are your purposes and how amazing is your love. Thank you for calling us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for including us in your church, your family. May your church be perfected in righteousness. May the bride be altogether lovely in holiness. May our love carry us one with another, ultimately to enjoy all that you have in store for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.